Let's pray together. Oh Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would shine the light of your word upon us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we are invited into the account of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. This is a pivotal moment in the life of Jesus. It comes just after his baptism, where he's heard the voice of his father saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And just before the official launch of his ministry, just one verse later in Luke chapter 4. We are invited into this story this morning by Jesus himself. There's no way we would have this story in our Bibles unless Jesus, at some point, had sat his disciples down and told them what had happened. There was no one else there with Jesus. He was alone. There were no observers, no eyewitnesses. It was Jesus in the wilderness, led by the Spirit, being tempted by the devil. He was fasting with the Spirit, and he was tempted in all the ways that you and I are often tempted. The particularities of the temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness are different, sure. But the underlying temptations are the same underlying temptations that you and I face every day of our lives. Jesus always invites us into his story. He always does. Because God, in Christ, God made man, breaks into the human story. He breaks into our story. God in Christ condescends, taking the form of a servant. He veils himself in human flesh, and he comes into our darkness. He comes into our filth. He comes into our lostness. And he experiences our temptations. He breaks into the human story. He breaks into your story. And he breaks into mine. And his story becomes our story. And now it's his life that defines my life. It's his obedience in the wilderness that defines my obedience and that covers up and perfects my disobedience and your disobedience. It's Jesus' love that now defines our love. His life and his death that defines our life and our death. Jesus invites you and me into his story this morning because his story is our story. And this morning, God wants to speak to us through his living word. He wants to draw our eyes once again to Jesus. Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus being tempted by the devil. Jesus victorious over the devil. This is another story of the victory and the glory and the majesty and the greatness of Jesus. That Jesus triumphs over the devil in the wilderness. He triumphs over the temptations that the devil throws his way. And in so doing, Jesus does what no man, what no woman could ever do. He perfectly resists temptation. And in so doing, he totally reframes how we can live with our fallen natures. Every single person in this room this morning, or watching online, is daily drawn to disobedience. We are tempted to rebel against God in subtle ways, in small ways, in big ways, and uh, destructive ways, sometimes unconscious ways, but we are not simply tempted to turn away from God by other alluring things. 
or because we're wired a certain way or because of our genes. Every single person in this room is tempted daily to rebel against God, to turn away from God by the devil himself. And this isn't like the cute cartoons that we have seen growing up with a, a cute little devil on one shoulder with a pitchfork in his hand and a cute little angel on the other shoulder with a harp in his. It's not like that at all. It's more like an invisible chain around our necks or invisible shackles around our ankles. And every waking and sleeping moment of our lives, the devil is seeking to enslave us into rebellion and into sin. And he does it to you and he does it to me in the same way he did it to Jesus here in Luke chapter four. But praise God, Jesus's story is our story. And let me spoil the ending for you. Not just the ending of our text this morning, not just the ending of the book of Luke, not just the ending of the, book, uh, the whole Bible, but more like the ending of this whole entire current age, which is that Jesus wins. Jesus is victorious. Jesus doesn't flinch in the face of the devil. Jesus doesn't slip up. He doesn't make a mistake. He doesn't fail like Adam did in the garden when he was tempted. In fact, he gloriously triumphs over the devil, over the schemes of the devil, over the lies of the devil, and his victory is our victory, praise God. So we step into Jesus' story this morning in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, and it's a story of Jesus' victory. I'd like for us to consider three lessons from this text, and the first is that temptation is inevitable. Temptation is inevitable. Open your Bibles with me. Let's look at Luke chapter 4, where we read this, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God, experienced profound temptation. The devil threw everything he possibly could at Jesus. He tried to play on Jesus' weakness, upon his hunger. And interestingly, like he does with us very often, he also tried to play on Jesus' strengths. From several different angles, he came at Jesus, seeking to find a point of entry. Jesus' hunger in verse 3, his lordship in verses 5 and 6, his sonship in verse 9. The devil was tactical. And he gave Jesus his best shot. So Jesus experienced this temptation here. But for Jesus and for us to be tempted is not to sin. Being tempted was not weakness. Jesus shows us in this account that to be tempted is inevitable and it's permitted by God. We all know that temptation is inevitable. I'm wearing my Captain Obvious hat right now. I'm not telling you something you don't already know. Of course temptation is inevitable. But we see in Christ why God allows it, and we see in Christ how God redeems it. So right at the beginning here in verse 1, we read that Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. God permitted himself in Christ to be tempted. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, who abhors sin, condescends into the form of a servant and allows himself to be tempted by Satan. Why? 
Well, here's one reason. It's that God longed so much to provide for us in his son Jesus, someone who would be able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Paul would write in Philippians 2, 7, that God in Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He's born in our likeness and he experiences, and in a sense he dignifies the inevitability of temptation in this fallen world, and he shows a way through it. The writer of the book of Hebrews would say about Jesus that in every respect, Jesus has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted, but he didn't sin. And I point this out to us because we can often think wrongly about temptation. We view it as a sin. And so we build up all sorts of different walls to try to avoid it. Now, it's not wrong to avoid temptation. In fact, it's very wise. It was Jesus himself who taught us to pray to our Father, lead us not into temptation. But the devil will always find a crack in the wall. 1 Peter 5.8 puts it this way, that your adversary, the devil, he's your adversary. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Temptation is a normal part of the human experience then. Jesus confirms that. Jesus affirms that. So the goal of the Christian life is not to arrive at some sort of place where we're no longer tempted. Good luck with that. Because as soon as you arrive at such an impossible point, the devil would exploit some kind of weakness or one of your strengths or find some sort of unlocked door in your spiritual house. Jesus shows us as he enters into our story, into the human experience, that temptation is inevitable, but surrender to temptation is not. Every temptation is an attack by the devil, yes, but on the flip side, because God reigns over all things, because God can take what the enemy means for evil and turn it for our good, every temptation is used by God as an invitation to draw us closer to him. Our goal when it comes to temptation is not some kind of pious, legalistic temptation eradication. Our goal because of Jesus is that we would come to see those very temptations themselves even as they come at us as hooks of slavery from the devil's hands, as hooks our God redeems to draw us closer to Christ. God can do this kind of thing because he's God. He can see the devil throw a hook of slavery at you, trying to grab you around the neck and pull you towards him. And God says, I'm going to use that very same hook that the devil intends for slavery. I'm going to use that same hook to draw my son or my daughter closer into freedom. Another way to look at it is that there is no stronger method, oftentimes, that God can use in his power. He can redeem to prepare us for what God has for us than temptation. Why else would Jesus, fresh off his baptism, just about to launch his public ministry, be led by God into the wilderness to be tempted? This was preparation for Jesus. Martin Luther once said, my temptations have been my masters in divinity. And if that's true, which I think it is, the topic of the first lesson taught by our professor Jesus is that temptation is inevitable. But 
God redeems it to draw us closer to Jesus. Second point is that the devil is a liar. The devil is a liar. Look with me at verse two. Jesus ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil is so predictable. He is so perversely, wickedly, stupidly predictable. I was thinking this morning of the time my family and I went on vacation to the Smoky Mountains as a kid, and outside our room one day, we noticed some people in the parking lot, and I, with all respect in my heart, will refer to them as rednecks. They were setting up chairs in the parking lot to watch the dumpster. And we thought, that's weird. You don't normally go to the Smoky Mountains to look at dumpsters. And so my dad went and asked these people, what are you doing? Why are you watching the dumpsters? And they said, well, last night around this time, some bears came out looking for trash, so we're here to watch them again. I guess the bears had wristwatches on and knew what time it was. They were predictable. The devil is predictable. And at the heart of every temptation of the devil is a question. In the Garden of Eden, it was, did God really say? And here in the wilderness in verse 3, again in verse 9, if you are the son of God, at the heart of every temptation is a question. Questioning God. Questioning God's word. Questioning God's goodness, questioning whether or not God really has your best in mind. And at the heart of every question is an accusation. God didn't really say. God isn't really wise. God isn't really good. God doesn't really have your best in mind. And at the heart of every accusation then is a lie, because the devil is a liar. He lies about God, he lies about his word, he lies about what is good, he lies about what's best, he lies about everything. And even when the devil says something true, he uses it to lie and to question and to accuse. Prime example in our text this morning, the devil quotes the Bible. Look with me at verse nine. The devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, Throw yourself down from here. For it is written, and here goes Jesus about to quote Psalm, I'm sorry, here goes the devil about to quote Psalm 91. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on his hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil quotes the truest thing that's ever been true. The Bible itself. And yet he uses it to lie. He twists it. He warps the truth of Scripture into some kind of ridiculous test of God's faithfulness. One commentator said this was a challenge to perform a spectacular but useless miracle. And the way the devil uses God's word, the way he twists it, is to tempt Jesus to test God's faithfulness rather than to trust it. See the difference there? Psalm 91 wasn't written to give us permission to test whether or not God is faithful at the time and place of our choosing. God, if you're faithful, I'm going to throw myself off the temple and you're going to catch me because Psalm 91 verse 12 says I'm not going to strike my foot against a stone. God, if you're faithful, you're going to do this thing for me. God, if you're faithful, you're going to give this thing to me. You're going to heal this thing. 
You're going to answer this question for me. You're going to do what I tell you to do when I tell you to do it in the time I tell you to do it. And if you don't do it, God, then you're not faithful because you're not doing what I told you to do. Psalm 91 wasn't written as a test of God's faithfulness. It was written so that we would trust God's faithfulness. The devil lies because he's a liar and he uses God's word to do it. Jesus responds to each of these three temptations, each of these three questions and accusations and lies of the devil by quoting God's word back to the devil. If you've ever wanted a clear example of the authority and the power of the word of God to turn back the lies of Satan, look at our text this morning. Three temptations, one of which includes an intentional twisting of God's word, each defeated by the power of God, by the power of God's word. Jesus was not only the word, but Jesus also knew the word, and he used the word as a weapon to answer Satan's lies. He quoted Deuteronomy to the devil. All the devil ever does is lie, and he tells hundreds of little lies to us in hundreds of little ways every day of our lives about our identity, about who we are, about what's right, about what's wrong, about what will bring us joy. Like he did with Jesus, he'll lie to us about how to provide for ourselves, how to gain power, whether or not we can really trust God. Every time you get on your computer or on your smartphone, every time you walk into your office or into your classroom, every time you're lonely, every time you're depressed, every time you crave another drink, the devil will lie to you. Did God really say? Does God really have your best in mind? Will anyone else know except just the two of us? Won't this make you feel better? Say this thing, do this thing, look at this thing. It's all a lie. Everything the devil ever does is lie. And often it's in small, subtle ways, unique to us like they were unique to Jesus, and they're tempting. And the best tool we have at our disposal is the same tool that Jesus had at his, the word of God. But there's another thing the devil loves to lie about more than anything else, and it's about Jesus himself. We see here in our text this morning when the devil questions the lordship, the sonship, the authority of the son of God, and he not only questions the authority of Jesus, but he insinuates that he, the devil, actually has the capacity to give authority to Jesus. Verse five, the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Said to Jesus, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Huh. The devil can't do that. That's a delusion. It's a fantasy. And Jesus exposes it for the lie that it is. Verse 8, Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. Friends, the devil is still up to this. He still lies about Jesus all the time, even though he's been decisively defeated on the cross. Just a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of visiting with a dear man who is dying of terminal cancer. And I sat with him on two separate occasions in his room, and we talked together, read scriptures together, prayed together, imagined together all the things he's about to see and experience in heaven. And he told me 
And he said, I could tell you this. He actually said, you can use any of this you need to for one of your sermons, Jamie. Uh, He said that sometimes the devil comes to him. And he can't see him, but he can hear him. And the devil says the most obscene, profane, vulgar things about Jesus. This man loves Jesus. This man trusts in Jesus. This man knows he belongs to Jesus. He knows where he's going. He's not afraid. And yet the devil comes to him and lies about Jesus and curses Jesus. When that man told me that, two things went through my mind. The first was, how dare the devil try this garbage on this dear man? How dare the devil? What a desperate, defeated loser that he would try this garbage. And the second thought went through my mind is, oh, how wonderful and powerful and glorious and victorious and authoritative is the name of Jesus Christ who is Lord over all this stuff. And there in that room, I, we just prayed the name of Jesus over that room. We consecrated it as a temple dedicated to the Lord. Friends, you might not have scripture memorized, chapter and verse. You might not be able to quote Deuteronomy by heart like Jesus did, but you have the name of Jesus And when the devil comes at you with his stupid lies, not if he comes to you, but when he comes to you with his stupid lies, you have the name of Jesus. And Jesus has already defeated all of those lies. The devil is a liar, and he knows it. And when we know it, we can do what Jesus did. We can stand on what we know and who we know is true. Let me close with this last point, and this last point pretty much preaches itself, which is that Jesus is stronger. Jesus is stronger. Jesus defeated the devil in the wilderness. He defeated those temptations, and the devil ran away. (laughs) But Luke tells us the devil would challenge Jesus again. Look at me at verse 13. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. It doesn't take long for this to happen. By the end of chapter four, Jesus is already confronting demons who are challenging him. And as Jesus' ministry progresses, as he fulfills the will of his father, Jesus is led to the cross where he takes upon himself all of our punishment, all of our sin, every time we give in to temptation, every failure, every perversion, every time we believe the lies of the devil. And even as Jesus is taking these things upon himself, the devil tries one last time to tempt Jesus. We picture Jesus, perfect, sinless Jesus, hanging on the cross between two thieves. And Luke 23, 35 tells us that the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, if he is. Then the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, now who does this sound like? If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Jesus would save someone all right, but he wouldn't save himself. He'd save you. He would save me. He would save us from every scheme, every lie, every accusation, every question, 
every temptation, every hook of the devil. And he would defeat them once and for all upon the cross. And just like Jesus wouldn't turn the stone into bread, he wouldn't turn away from the nails. And just like Jesus wouldn't jump off the temple, he wouldn't excuse himself from the cross. At every single turn, Jesus was victorious over temptation, victorious over the devil. And because Jesus' story is our story, it means that at every turn as we face temptation, as we face the devil's questions and accusations and lies and hooks and traps, it's Jesus' victory that defines us. It's Jesus' victory on the cross, his victory in the wilderness that defines us. Because of the first Adam who failed the test in the garden, sin and death enslaved us. But because of Jesus, the second Adam who passed the test in the wilderness and who passed the test on the cross, sin and death are destroyed. Brothers and sisters, we are not strong enough to overpower temptation. We're not. Only Jesus is strong enough. So run to him. Cling to him. Flee to him. Every time you hear another lie, every time you hear another question, every time you face another accusation or temptation or hook, run to Jesus. Call upon his name. Say his name. Praise his name. Remember how our Romans reading ended just a little while ago? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will what? Be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's true. Jesus is strong enough to save you. He is kind enough to sympathize with your weaknesses. And he's victorious enough to set you free. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your victory there in the wilderness and there upon the cross and there on Easter Sunday. We praise you, Jesus. We praise you, Jesus, our victorious Lord, that you defeated temptation, you defeated Satan, and your victory is ours. Help us, O oh Lord. Help us. We look to you in your wilderness, Jesus, as we walk now in ours. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that for us you are strong and for us you are kind. Amen.